0: Okay, it looks like we're live. Welcome everyone to the blend, CXCEX, where we're talking about everything in between. We strongly believe that the employee experiences dictate the customer experiences. And we're really here to just talk about everything uh, relative to that, industry updates, whatever it might be. Uh, I am Fran Brisky. I'm the founder and CEO of Hark, which is a channel that allows customers to get in touch easily through video and audio communication. Um, helping brands on the back end as well, but we're not here to talk about that. The first episode of The Blend is really focused on the Freshly crew, and we're missing one. Uh, Colin Crowley is also going to be joining us. Classic, his flight was canceled, and then he was on a standby list or something. Somehow he's getting home and he's going to join us soon. Um, But I'm going to hand it over to Ben and Dan to introduce themselves, talk a little bit about their impact in the industry, and also what is your superhero as it relates to CX, your superpower?
1: Yeah, Dan, you
2: wanna go first? Yeah, sure, so um, as mentioned, my name is Dan. Um, I am a, a long time CX professional, I've been doing this for 20 uh, plus years, although this is not what I started out thinking I was gonna do. I went to school, thought ultimately I wanted to be a teacher, realized that that was not gonna be it for me, um, got into some of the contact center space pretty early on and uh, realized that this was something that I liked to do, uh, which was not expected at all. Um, found my way into some leadership roles. Uh, I've really loved it uh, ever since then. And, and, and you know, I have had a, tons of crazy opportunities, lots of fantastic jobs, uh, met a lot of great people, obviously Ben being one of them, Colin, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been a journey
0: that was super unexpected. What What is a superpower and what made you realize you didn't want to become a teacher?
2: Oh, what made me, re- the, the, the biggest thing that made me realize I didn't want to become a teacher was the fact that I didn't like children. <laughs> Good, <right. laughs> so uh, somehow I'm, you know, mid-40s now and uh, uh, I don't have any, I have two fur kids, but that's uh, that's it. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, what my superpower uh, is, I, I would say, you know, my CX superpower is uh, an uncanny ability to build relationships. I think that's one of the things that, you um, um, you know, it's kind of that unexpected thing that I, that thing I didn't know that I was going to have to do, right? Like you knew you were going to have to be looking at charts, and understanding that, and all these other kinds of things like that. But just trying to negotiate, even getting a laptop set up for someone, uh, is one of those things that is just like, oh my gosh, this shouldn't be this difficult, uh, but here we are.
0: So.
1: I love that. How do I follow it? I don't know. Um, so my name is Ben. Um, I am the senior director of CX at a company called pair. Eyewear. we do really cool glasses where you can change your tops and they do this fun thing, which is super exciting. Uh, prior to that, I worked in sports entertainment, uh, for over a decade with a bunch of different companies like the Yankees and Patriots, Bruins, MSG, Barclays center, um, all leading up to this wonderful ride that I took with Dan at freshly, where we were together for, for four and a half years. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if Dan knows, but I I had originally applied for the job at Freshly when it was a CX manager role and uh, wound up uh, not taking it, staying where I was staying. And when I came back, I found out that they had hired this guy, Dan, and that if I wanted to take this incredible ride at Freshly, I was going to have to do so under his command. And uh then I saw Dan and I was like, OK, OK, I'll take that ride and I'll, I'll, I'll be second to Dan. I'll take it. Um, and then we did that together for four and a half years. And um, still to this day, one of the coolest things, maybe the coolest thing I've ever gotten a chance to do um, mm-hmm. is build that. And I can't wait to talk about it here today. My superpower, I, I think, is that I didn't come into that as like a. a contact center guy. I didn't know the world of ticketing and calls, chats, emails. um, And I still like to sort of wear that hat that I'm more of an in-person, like at the venue CX guy. Like I know how to deal with people in person. And I am continuously trying to translate that to calls, chats, and emails. And I think that that is a unique way to look at uh, a contact center um, and really drives that getting the customers what they want and making them as happy as possible. Because when you're in person, you have no choice, right? You can't put them on hold. Um, you have to deal with it right there, live and in the moment. And I try to bring that over. So I would say that that's my, my my secret
0: superpower. Amazing. Uh, I just realized as we're going, I put the wrong link in the LinkedIn event. So that's good. I'm going to update that now. People should oh, just that's right. Sorry. <laughs> that's, right. um, that's great. So, so if you don't mind backing up, like you both, like you said, Ben, you applied for a certain role, you both started around the same time. Mm -hmm. How did you develop and form that relationship and and kick it off the right way for a successful outcome, obviously, that that freshly had?
1: Yeah, so I'll I'll give it to Dan here too in a second. I just, from my point of view, You know, I had been talking with Colin for some time. Uh, there were, you know, fits and starts on whether I was coming or not coming. It was a heck of a, a risk at that point. The CX team was about 12 people. Um, the company was less than 100 people. There was no guarantee that it was going to exist um, in the near future. There were other companies out there doing similar things. There was I remember the day in the office when, like, Maple and Sprig closed. And it was like, we could have been one of those um, that didn't make it. So uh, finally took that chance popped over and dan is there as cx manager and and he's based out in arizona and he's going to fly to new york for this like intense period of of training where we're going to do this thing together and i think that the relationship that we built in that two weeks and and dan can can tell me if i'm wrong but um, that really set the foundation for what wound up being this heck of a ride over four and a half five years um and even though he was in arizona and i was in new york we had built a strong enough relationship in that time together. Um, We we had to meet with the whole team and sit in these small rooms and tell our backstory 15 times. And so even though we were talking to different people each time, I had to hear Dan say his backstory like every one of those times and he'd do the same for me. So uh, I think Colin knew that too. And he forced us into that situation. And so we we became best friends really, really quickly. Um, And that sort of set the stage for the ride we took, even though we were on different coasts. Dan, tell me I'm wrong.
2: No, no. Well, so I'm a professional level introvert, right? And when we were getting ready to start the position, like three days before, uh, or a couple days before, I get a LinkedIn uh, invitation from Ben. And I'm like, like, who is this guy? Like, why is he already trying to friend me on LinkedIn? Like, what is this about? I, I don't even know him. No no, I'm not, no, I'm not doing this. I remember even talking to my partner about that. I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. I don't know this guy. And so uh, I get there. We're sitting, I, I think we're, for, you know, it's like the first day of school, really. You know, we're forced to sit next to each other in these little uh, desks. And like, I, I think he was already there. And, and And it was like, like he was already, comfortable, right? And I think that's just the Ben kind of thing to, to to do is just be comfortable wherever you are, no matter what you're doing. And um, it didn't take long before he broke down my my introvert wall. Like it was like almost instant, right? And um, he has just this ability or just this way about him to, that, that he is able to like kind of disarm you in that way, right? And, and that's not a bad thing. I think it's a brilliant thing. And you know, you were talking about how you didn't have any of the CX experience and anything like that. It was never an issue. It was never a challenge. It was never something that came up as like, oh, Ben, you don't know about contact centers, so you can't uh, chime in here, right? Um, because the expertise that you did bring um, was far beyond what you know I, I was expecting initially and then came to expect as the time went by right? But um, yeah, we um, kind of forged that bond very early on, again, being kind of forced into this situation. Uh, We went on several mandates, which if you're not familiar, (laughs) mandates where a couple of dudes uh, go and they hang out and they do dude things, whatever those things are. One of the things that we did uh, that I'm still not sure if we lose our man cards for this or not is we uh, whispered to each other in the whispering wall in, um, is that Grand Central? Grand Central. Yes, yeah. we did. Yep. Uh, and so For those for was... those
1: who don't know, Fran, I guess we have to do this now. In, <laughs> in Grand Central, there is a, uh, a tiled dome roof that makes it so that if you stand in one corner of the room and someone stands in the other corner of the room facing away from each other and you speak into it, the other person will hear it. The sound will travel across the roof. Sure. Um, and so you see a lot of touristy people doing it. I took Dan there and there's the two guys standing across the room, whispering to each other, sweet nothings.
3: Sweet,
0: sweet nothings. yeah. <laughs> classic <laughs> classic touristy thing to do, but that it's, it's an interesting point you bring up, Dan. So, so Ben came in without that contact center experience. And like, how did you see that really help? Because CX is interesting where the technology has evolved a lot over time. There's always new products out. There's always new streamlined ways to do things, and customers want to engage in different ways. So was it interesting to see somebody think more outside the box, and how did he push you and the team in doing so?
2: Yeah, I think that's that, that's the primary thing I was about to say, is that he didn't come in with a preconceived notion of what should be, right? And I think that's what helped make us um, do things uh, just that bit differently right I, and i'm not gonna lie and say that it was always fun and easy and all that kind of stuff like that i think there were times where i was challenged at the point where i was like mm, i don't know about this but right we tried to do some of these things because they were you know and, and i don't necessarily love that phrase outside the box but they weren't the norm right they weren't what everybody was doing um and so we did um just some different outreach things that we were trying right and some different ways that we were uh receiving the the message and how we were responding to messages right wasn't it the whole cookie cutter type experience uh and so just having that completely different perspective i think was uh probably the most beneficial
0: thing that we uh you know that we had in that particular uh, situation yeah and, and that that challenging internally uh within the team in a respectful manner I, I know from past experience on my side when things get really hard um that's what makes a team really close and respond the right way versus saddle out so uh i've worked with ben for a while too and i know he's got a good way of making people come together and respond the right way and that's probably most paramount in the cx world so i hear you that, that makes a ton of sense
2: yeah i think the, the the other cool thing was is that like colin never made it like like he was the be-all end-all right and i know he'll be joining us soon and, and you know i think this is an opportunity for us to kind of talk him up a little bit but uh, he was always curious to hear uh, what thoughts we had, uh, and if we could uh, iterate on some of those thoughts, you know, all those types of things. There was never a, uh, there was never like this hierarchy where it felt like, okay, Collins the Collins way or or, or nothing, right? And um, you know, it gave us a lot of freedom to do some of the things that we did, um, and I think it, it is ultimately what made us as successful as we were.
0: Yeah, he's actually joined now. Right before I let him in, um, I'll, I'll let you two kind of go off before I admit him. But how did he? like obviously he's that barrier between leadership in a way, right? Like he's communicating what he's hearing on his side and he's communicating upwards as well. Um, how did he shield you from that to let you run a best in class organization?
1: There, There's a lot I can say on that. Um, so I love Mike Weistrak still to this day. He was CEO and founder of Freshly, but he is a very big personality. He would tell you this himself. Um, and I think and Collins popping in here, um, the fact that we didn't really interact with, with Mike all that much or hear any of the stuff that some of the other teams had to deal with, I know is because Colin was taking all that fire, right? So he was going and having those one-on-ones with him and he was dealing with the, the crazy screaming, yelling, what's going on, what's happening. Um, and Colin would sort of like deflect that fire from us and we never had to really deal with it at all. And we were able to really build great things and um, build an incredible team more importantly than anything else. Um, and and I, I give Colin all the credit for that for sure.
2: Yeah, the, the, the way Colin was able to filter the message. There's so when it got to us, there was a, a like, it was a very obvious p- path that we had, right? And, and uh, to go forward, right? We, we had to make our own way, right? But we knew what needed to be ultimately uh, taken care of. So it was a filtering unlike any other. And, I, and I've tried to emulate that uh, since then because it was very impressive. Um, and I don't know that I'm necessarily uh, remotely as skilled as he was with the with the filtering of that, but it's uh, I think it's what ultimately uh, helped to get in any messaging that was coming to us uh, that made sense, right? It made sense was actionable and things that we could actually uh, affect. So
0: you both started. Where where was Freshly when you started? Was it taking off pretty rapidly?
1: So at that point, um, I always forget the number, but I think we were in the 80s. So whether Dan was 84, I was 85, something like that. We were in those number of employees. And I believe that included the, the kitchen as well. Um, and the kitchen was one small kitchen in Phoenix, Arizona, with like one grill. That was all, the, all the steaks yeah. and the chickens were being cooked on that grill, uh, which blew my mind when I finally got out there to see it. Dan saw it earlier than I did because he was nearby. Um, I can't believe he didn't run screaming the first day that he came back like wait 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 we're doing this there this is what's happening um yeah so at that point i would say we were there was a feeling in the air and dan spoke to this almost immediately that we were building something cool right you could you could almost feel it it was tangible when you walked into the office that no one thought we're here and we're staying here it was we're here and we're growing and that was immediate. Uh, immediate, and it was felt across the board. Um, but early days, we were—I don't know—damn it, thirty thousand meals or something like that. Uh, was, was one of the first couple of weeks. I remember that number sticking out in my head and no one knew how many meals could even be produced in that building or what efficiencies we can gain. I remember there was one trip out to Arizona and, and Mike came on, on that trip and uh, he was getting to see the CX office and meet Dan and meet the whole team. And I remember standing next to Mike in the office and I was like, what do we think capacity is? Like, where are we growing to? And he was like, I don't know. 100,000 meals would be great out of that kitchen. I was like, really? And, you know, we wound up getting 350,000 meals out of that one kitchen and then yeah. adding numbers of other kitchens where we were doing over a million meals a week, which is crazy. But, like, even at that point, Mike's dream was yeah, 100,000. Um, but, yeah, our, our first couple uh, weeks there, months there, uh, we were nowhere near that. And there was no guarantee we were going to get there. But everybody felt like we were.
2: Yeah. I, yeah, I think part of the reason I didn't go running for the hills was I had the opportunity to meet... Uh, Alejandro, who's one of the brilliant um, managers, um, maybe director now at um, yeah. at the facility, and uh, like it was very clear to me that he knew what was going on. He knew everybody there. He knew everything that was happening. He knew every piece of equipment. He knew it all, right? And he told us very early on that the maximum capacity that we could ever get out of that kitchen was going to be two hundred and sixty thousand meals, if I remember correctly. Even though we weren't anywhere close. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, I mean, if we're sending out 260,000 meals a week, that's a pretty decent customer base. Let's, let's just see how this goes. And then of
0: course we get up to over a million meals a week uh, in a couple of years. And it was just incredible. And for anyone watching that doesn't know, so, so Freshly was creating fresh meals and delivering them straight to your door. They were one of the pioneers to do that. And it's hilarious to think, you know, we think of startup paying so much in software of Trying to scrap together pieces of your infrastructure, uh, getting getting stuff out the door, and, and a per- great onboarding experience for your clients, and working like crazy behind the scenes. But but you're I mean the, the grill example is, is spot on. It's like you've got this one grill that you can put you know like Mike said a hundred thousand meals, and you do it right, and you're three hundred fifty thousand meals. But you've got the team to come together and make that happen. So that, that's that's a funny story. Yeah. To,
1: to, to give a little more context on, on Freshly, because I know we sort of skipped over that, um, there were companies like HelloFresh and Blue Apron out there, and they were shipping ingredients in the box with a card of telling you how to go and cook it. Um, and that seemed to be the model that everybody was doing that was like the food tech, right? Um, there were very few doing fully prepared meals that were ready to heat and eat, um, not frozen, sent fresh to your doorstep the logistical challenges that went into that to say that once this meal is cooked, we only have 60 hours from this point. Colin is here. Colin uh, is here. Yeah, we, we only have oh 60 world. hours from this point to get that meal to your doorstep. You can imagine how difficult that is um, when you're sending you know meals in the mail through FedEx and all the things that can go wrong that then wind up on the CX team. Um, so yeah, good point to, to bring in context about Freshly here.
0: Yeah. Colin, quick intro. Uh, Colin's jet, jet lags, flight delayed, of but it. he's here.
3: Yeah. Hi, everyone. Yes, I'm Colin. I'm currently a CX Advisor at Freshworks. But uh, yes, my background is in the contact center space. So for the past, my word, almost 15 years now, I spent my time um, heading CX at various companies, Uh, I headed a specialized customer support team at the company Ticket Network for about six years, which is like um, the main competitor to StubHub in the event entertainment ticketing space. Spent six years at Freshly uh leading the cx team there where i met ben and dan i spent some time heading cx more briefly at the fintech company albert now like i said i'm with uh, freshworks a software company so I've, i've kind of gone over to the vendor side of things a little bit and i'm channeling my knowledge and using it in different ways to help out our own customers when it comes to their own cx related strategies
0: that's right and colin has known dan the longest so dan is now bald and he's known Ben the second long, longest and, and Ben's on the way. So soon I'll be there too. I'm still still working with them. I had that effect on people. <laughs> uh, so, so Colin, you, you came on and you, and you hired both, you know, we talked a lot before you came about Ben and Dan and, and hired them. When, when you did that, like, what were you looking to accomplish with them? Were there certain metrics that were top of mind? You were scaling an organization. How did you do that seamlessly and grow a team and train them? while continuing to deliver best-in-class customer experience. I think that's something a lot of people struggle with all the time.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge, especially as there are very rising demands from really everyone. So when you think about it, your customers have rising demands, the, the agents under you have higher expectations and demands. You're dealing with probably a C-suite that has higher expectations and demands. It's kind of bouncing at all those things. And I think the big challenge is how do you scale cost-effectively and efficiently, while at the same time, not sacrificing quality. And uh, that's really the key thing. I think a lot of people are a bit scarred by the more traditional call center experience. I, I, and I was in one of those earlier in my my experience, where it's all about you know, answering the phone call and getting the customer off the phone and how many calls you take an hour and that sort of thing. And quality was kind of a secondary, or not even a secondary characteristic. So if it was secondary characteristic that was a good day. Um, and there was everything was sacrificed for efficiency and i think nowadays people understand that you have to balance out both quality and efficiency and that's really the challenge that cx leaders have to encounter um yeah my experience looking back on on the whole uh freshly experience, there were uh, a few things the first thing and it sounds very uh basic at, at, at its core but it really comes down to hiring the right people um, so I think we were, we were not very stereotypical in in how we hired at people. And this is a broad week as Ben and Dan were very intimately involved in this as well. And actually did a lot more direct hiring, uh, later on than, than even I did. Uh, but we, we put a big emphasis on hiring the right people. Uh, so you need to hire people who are willing to go through that challenging experience where you're scaling up an organization very fast. Because that takes a certain type yeah. of person who can withstand that pace and at the same time stay positive. And people who also are dedicated to quality, uh, who are really going to care about that as you grow the organization. And because you're scaling fast, it's inevitable that someone you hire today as a frontline agent, you know, in six months or even less... They could even move into a new position, or you may have need of that person to do other things of a more leadership capacity. So you also have to hire people who can you can move into those positions because uh, if you're spending all your time, you know, managing all the specifics and the details, it doesn't give you any opportunity to strategize at all. So you really have to hire good people, good frontliners, and you have to hire really, really good managers too to kind of set that cultural tone. I think another thing you need to do is really focus on uh, infrastructure um so you know there's a whole analogy about you have to build the plane as you fly it and that sort of thing which I think is really apt and i would just add a third component to that which is you have to build the plane while you're flying it and you have to write the manual at the same time so if you add in the third component it's the manual where you're kind of building up the infrastructure so you're also saying here are the sops we're creating uh, out of the process of building the plane they may not be perfect the first time around but you're building out a process that can be followed by other people Uh, So it's not just a flash in the pan and not just about getting over the hump today. And I think that's the key. So really building up that infrastructure as you're going along being very conscious of creating it. Um, And that allows you to be much smarter when it comes to uh, scaling because you're not just, um, again, dealing with the the momentary realities, but you're also building for the future. Uh, The very last thing I would say is, um, and what we did really early on, is establish a quality assurance program. Which, which was really, really uh, important. And I, mainly because it was established so early on, which I think is kind of unusual uh, because almost every customer support team I've ever encountered Um, establishes quality assurance programs that that are that are relatively robust so you have some sort of defined rubric and you have some process around it and you get scores out of it and you apply those scores to how you're evaluating your agents and so forth Um, but a lot of organizations don't even think about a quality assurance program until they're very very good size. And I see this in all honesty among customers I deal with in the Freshworks context where you don't see many companies, and even larger ones, have a quality assurance program until they notice there's a diminution of quality because the organization's gotten so large and yeah. you're kind of playing catch up. But doing that very, very early is good because that way not only does it help your training program because you're defining what quality is, um, but it also means that as you're scaling the organization, you have a way for evaluating quality and elevating people who, who, uh, who deliver good quality. Um, and so it's not all based on how fast someone is responding. Uh, the, the last thing I'll throw in there is like KPIs. So you need to have defined KPIs, which is really important too. So everyone knows kind of where they stand and things, and they know their place in the organization and where they fit into that. And you can motivate people through that and recognize them through that. So you really need a defined way of being able to evaluate how people are doing, and through that you're evaluating how you're doing, and you can set clear goals for yourself.
2: I, I would like to I would like to chime in for just a moment um you you noticed the fully thought out response that he provided for you there right imagine getting that in an email all right because Colin was the master of composing emails that were like you know novels right and so um when you came into work if you didn't have one of those it was it, something was wrong right so um it's just you know, the, the thoroughness of, of, of how he thinks about things was always evident uh, for us, right? And it gave us uh, not just a, a clear path on, 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 on what we needed to do, but how we needed to think about certain things, right? So I, I think that was just brilliantly explained there.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the, strong, the strongest leaders uh, I've worked with and I've met, especially in this space, clearly articulate. What they're trying to do both short-term and long-term and when everybody is rowing in the same direction it becomes fun doing it because people aren't blaming and doing this and that it's more hey like here's where we're all going together and we're all brought in we're gonna put our egos aside and do that and uh that, that's a really good point of like how do you communicate that and as its organization gets larger and larger to have it written on paper where people can reference back to it um add it into their okrs whatever it might be is, is a very compelling thing um so we have we have some questions coming in, uh, but one thing that, Colin, you brought up about, you mentioned a lot, so I hope everyone has their notebooks out, this is being recorded, well, <laughs> we, can, we can reference back to it, but KPIs and looking and tracking at metrics. Before you hired Dan and Ben, how did you get leadership involved to look at CX in the right lens to say, this is what we're going to invest in? And did you have metrics that are separate from leadership versus your internal team? How did that whole dynamic work?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. So um, I would say that there was core agreement on certain overarching metrics. Uh, So there was a bit of a distinction where when it came to the overarching team, there were certain key metrics that represented key areas. So like, for instance, you can have all different types of efficiency related metrics, but for email, and this is pretty classic across the board anyway, like you're typically looking at like average response time or average first response time or something like that. So I would say that when it came to the the C-suite view, the idea was finding what are some of those key metrics and elevating those. Um, So And also making sure you're balancing that out so you have a quality component and an efficiency component too. Um, So, again, you're making sure that you're tracking both those things and you're shining light on those throughout the rest of the organization. So, like uh, customer satisfaction scores were big because we always had surveys. And that was before we had a quality assurance program. Those were the ways that we understood uh, the the quality that we were delivering to customers through their own perspective. Um, And then when it came to um, efficiency, uh, it varied by channel because every channel is different. And we were very email dominant early on, like a lot of companies back six seven years ago or so uh so we were looking at like average response time um and uh, and those are the types of metrics that that were kind of reported up along with just basic volume metrics to understand you know how many contacts are coming in and so forth so those are some of the key metrics reported up to the c-suite and then when it came to individuals they were a little bit more uh granular uh and this is something where i think you can take different takes on it and we were probably you know more complex on this than other organizations are but we had like um Uh, three efficiency metrics rolled into one, which we use to evaluate our agents. And part of that was to make sure there is, uh, there was a holistic approach to efficiency because sometimes uh, certain metrics can incentivize bad behavior if they're taken in isolation, Uh, right? So for instance, you have a lot of companies that will track the number of tickets per hour or emails per hour or something like that, which uh, makes sense because you get a sort of utilization out of that. Um, But uh, the problem with that is you're, not necessarily tracking uh, quality inherent in that metric. Um, and uh, and you also want to make sure that uh, you're, you're incentivizing people to deliver good quality. So if you're solely tracking something, which is about how fast you are, how many contacts you're processing through, those may not be the best metrics. Or you may have someone who is kind of self-selecting certain types of contacts that are easier to answer to the detriment of other people if you have more of, a, of like an open inbox system. So if you have different types of metrics, you can try to uh, get around how people may uh, try to get around the system essentially so for like email we we evaluated average email response time um, as like the core metric um, and then um, in, in addition to that and it kind of varied at various points but you can also measure simultaneously the number of emails um, and we also measured uh, like for instance you may want to measure the difference between average first response time and the overall average response time because you may want to put special emphasis on how quickly an agent is responding to customers in the first interaction because that has more impression uh, because it's the first instance that a customer is having about uh, engaging with a company. So you may want to track that separately because you could otherwise have a system where uh, someone is, is overarchingly good with their email response time back and forth um, but uh, they may not be giving those customers the best service when it comes to that first response. Or another thing we also did is have what's called like a violation percentage, which is like an inversion of what you typically see with, with the SLA percentage. So you set some sort of service level uh, across your, your emails, your contacts, and you, you look at the percentage of times an agent is hitting that service level. And that's useful, especially if you have varying standards in terms of responsiveness. So you may have different response times for a lower priority email versus a higher priority, which isn't really encapsulated by looking at an average response time. Mm -hmm. Um, So the SLA can kind of bake that in. So the violation percentage was like an inverse of that. And it it looked at a certain threshold above which we would consider a response time egregious um, and uh, calculate the percentage of times that um, a given agent um, uh, was engaging in contacts and their average response time was above that egregious level. Um, and then again, that was kind of designed to make sure that uh, when we're calculating these median averages all over the place where there's the possibility that there are some outliers that are really bad experiences for customers, uh, that we're also tracking those outliers and making sure they don't go past a certain level. Uh, and again it's all part of making sure that we're looking granularly at the agent experience trying to account for all possibilities.
0: So, so you're tracking all that, Ben. So, so we have two questions, one from Nicholas, which I, I want to get to in a second, it's a, it's a really good one. I mean, compliments Ben on his glasses, which don't get Ben started, he goes off on that. But uh, Jessica Rose poses a good question. Ben, you're in New York, you're in the thick of it. She asks, what tools would you utilize to track quality overall, but to take it a step further, how did you also implement that? Like, so, so you can track it, but how did you give that feedback to agents and how did you let them know the job they're doing, but also how they could improve?
1: yeah so that's a great question because when we started this and colin mentioned you know having a a quality assurance program so early on there really weren't a lot of tools out there at that point um so originally it was like SurveyMonkey and and google sheets that you tried to like figure out how many different emails or how many different phone calls you had to you know qa for which agent um and hopefully not cross over each other, right? Because originally it would just be like one grader, but once there was more than one grader, I, w- I don't wanna, you know, QA the same ticket twice. And so we would try to mark those in a, in a Google sheet and then actually process the, the QA uh, rubric in SurveyMonkey. Um, I actually remember one of the first like Zendesk conferences we went to where we saw a Maestro QA booth in the back and they were like first pitching this new tool um, and then Vasu, the, the founder of Maestro came to the office and was pitching this as something he was looking for feedback on. Um, it was not fully out in the market yet. And uh, early on, we, we moved over from SurveyMonkey to Maestro QA, uh, used that tool for a while, um, had a great experience uh, for a number of years, then switched over to Playvox. Um, and at Pairiware now, again, I'm, I'm back with Maestro QA. So I, I've seen a few out there. There's others like Klaus. Um, um, I'm, I'm a fan of my show QA today um, and it's definitely helped and I've seen it go from a very, very small team with just, you know, one or two graders to a world where you have, you know, almost 20, 20 plus graders and, you know, an appeals process built into it and a, a way to sort of annotate on a ticket right next to a grade and then share that out via like PDFs with the agents or even have the agents logging into my show to like really play with their feedback and um, it depends how robust you want to be, um, but those tools are out there. And I'll, I'll just say my short sure QA is my, my favorite today.
0: So then take it to the next step. How did you, like, obviously that feedback is there, but it's a delicate thing to say to some, like, you know, here's what's going on and here's how we need you to get better without hurting morale because they're customer facing and they have to be on their best on the phones and over email and explain sure. that tone. As we talked about CXCX, like how did you bridge that gap?
1: Yes, I, in, in in the long run at Freshly, at one point in there, I was manager of QA, so I, I just handled that part of the business. So uh, it is near and dear to my heart. Um, so I, I will say that the initial thought is that, oh, that's going to be hard to take that hard feedback. Um, what I think goes into you thinking that way is that these aren't consistent conversations. I only hear from you when it's negative that's not true in a good QA program. We're having these conversations every week and one bad week is not going to result in you being terminated, right? We're going to see how we can improve for next week. So that's the tone of the conversation. And second, if you have a, you know, a really good tool like Maestro in place where you're not just saying yes, no to certain questions, you're saying no, because right here, let me highlight it for you and say, here's why you're getting a no on this question. It sort of removes the thought of, well, I got this because that guy didn't like me. The greater just doesn't like me that's out the window when you have to show show your work right like why am i giving this person a no for this answer and i have to give commentary on it and if and when you do disagree having an appeals process in place makes those conversations really great right so when i sit down with someone and i say hey look you had a really rough week last week you had five auto fails and, and here's why they were auto failed um i'm coming with data i'm not just saying this i'm going to show them we're going to look over these together we're going to spend time talking about it we're going to say how can we get better from here and it's not like you're 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 fired today over it so those conversations don't wind up being all that negative actually
0: so hearing colin or actually dan talked about colin's memoirs of emails and 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 the way that you handle qa it's the consistency went from a leadership perspective being consistent and setting expectations with the employees of here's what you can expect from me and here's what I expect from you, seems to be the path forward that works the best, where we're going to get together all the time, and sometimes it might be something to improve upon. Other times it's going to be praising you, but I'm not going to be an unfamiliar face. I'm going to be somebody that you want to work with and you want to get better with. The next, so there's two questions that also came up in in the comments here, and and thank you for all these. Please keep posting these. The the closer I get to the mic, the more I sound like a podcaster. Um, Nicholas talked about how can CX, partner with the broader organization to discuss voice of the customer and share it. And Alexandra brings up another good point to dovetail that is good managers driving overall CX and company morale. How do you deliver that customer first mindset across the org outside of your direct um, department? So I know that's kind of a loaded question. Let's start with, with, with voice of the customer as Nicholas asked that a while ago.
1: I, I sort of see them as, as both the same and how we would approach it is sort of similar too. Um, so like early days, freshly, there would be like a Monday morning stand up where the whole company would be in one room, we'd all stand together. Um, and one of the things that we got to do early on, Colin and I uh, was was go through some of the comments from the previous week and pick like two really great positive ones and two challenges. Um, Two things that were not doing so well. And we would get up and we would speak that to the whole company. So they were hearing directly from us, not some email, not in writing. Um, You were going to have to sit through every Monday morning, Colin standing up there and saying, you know, I got my meals and and they were really, really bad. And here's why, and here's how delayed they were and blah, blah, blah. Um, And that really helped because... Almost at, at the end of all those meetings, someone would come up to us and say, tell me more about that. What, what happened there? Um, can I can I get more information around that? Are you seeing more of those? And so we would try to pick, you know, one comment or two that are representative of a whole bunch more. Um, and hopefully that would gain interest. Yep. I then had this thought at some point it was hard to really uh, effectuate. But I, I tried to reach out to customers uh, who had left left those written comments and asked if they would record a video of themselves um saying what they said in the comment and then i would show that in the monday meeting instead of colin and i reading it um and we did that for a few weeks it was hard to to manage to get people to actually record the video and the logistics of playing the video in that meeting room um but i think that helped too because almost every time we would get comments after that of oh now i remember rose rose who looks like this who was wearing that piece of clothing really had a rough time with that meal like now i'm connected to her um, so that that's my two cents on how i've been able to do it in the past and how i continue to try to get that done
3: yeah I'll, I'll jump in and say i think um one of the key things about voice of the customer programs is they have to be holistic so you'll find some organizations that may use voice of the customer and kind of shorthand for things like surveys but the really the idea is that a, a real voice of the customer program has to be pretty all-encompassing because there are different ways your customers speak to you and sometimes they may speak to you by proxy as well so uh, really, what you need is the ability to be able to take all these disparate pieces of data and knit them together. And this is actually a great use of uh, CX organization, uh, really, uh, because CX kind of sits at that nexus and engages with customers the most. So it's a great role for a CX leader to add more prominence to his or her organization or his or her own role in the organization, because chances are you have access to more of this data than anyone else but you really want to look at like different ways you get data. So surveys obviously are one way that you get data from customers. Uh, and then you may have areas of behavioral data. Uh, so maybe there are various ways you're tracking the behavior of customers as to how they interact with your website or may, how often they contact customer support uh, could be another example. Uh, so even just within customer support, there's a lot of behavioral data there. Um, and then you look at um, other areas as well. So uh the the reasons customers contact you are one thing so let's say you have an automatic uh, contact tagging system that you can use that's ai powered that automatically tags your incoming contacts you get a sense for why customers are contacting you or what their sentiment may be and then the other thing is also using the people internally in your organization uh, like your agents and using them as proxies for the voice of the customer because they know probably more than anyone else because they're dealing with customers all day long but a lot of organizations don't necessarily consult their agents so much. So those are another source of voice of the customer. Uh, and Ben led a lot of those efforts, when he was especially serving as our liaison uh, with teams like product and engineering and so forth. So having someone who can kind of serve as the voice of the customer through their inherent knowledge and bring that to the rest of the organization. So I think the key is you had to find all the different ways you can track voice of the customer, make sure they're coming into some sort of single source that can take that information and do something with it and disseminate it. And you know, like Ben was saying, finding different ways to do that. So it's not all about reports, but you find ways to really make it meaningful. And those, those customer videos that, that Ben was talking about were definitely really meaningful. And you could tell that it stuck with people and had an impact. So, yeah, it's about unifying it. Uh, all that information and also just making sure you have uh, you, offer, you have opportunities to collect it so the idea of having like an AI uh, uh, contact tagging program is an example of you having to go out and, and and get a system that will help to get you data you would naturally have so you have to find ways of getting the data then you need to find ways of organizing it and then you need to find ways of disseminating it and that's a great role for a CX leader that can really raise your profile and the profile of your organization because um, you're, you're really the gatekeeper in many respects to that information.
1: Yeah, one, one thing I'll add to it, too, is yeah. you know, whenever I hear some senior leader at the company saying that we need to spend money to go out to do uh, some survey or some user study, uh, my first response back is, have you talked to the agents yet? Do you have a CX team here? Um, maybe start, start right there
0: um, and see what insight they can help give to you. The so, so the video thing is obviously fascinating to me. You can think why. Did you find with that, one, talk to me about the empowerment that you had mentioned about the video versus text and why that was, but also when you reached out to the clients and they had the chance to feel heard and send the video across, did that change anything? Like if there was a negative review and they were able to put it into a video, um, did that change like their loyalty? Did they feel like they're a, a part of Freshly in some way?
1: Yeah, so I'll I'll give my answer there because I was the guy who who talked to them. Uh, I was the one asking for the videos and then had to deal with them after the fact. Um, A lot of times, yeah, they felt really heard and they felt like they had a a piece of this company now. Um, Sometimes that was good, sometimes that wasn't. um, Where they now thought they had direct access to me and they were like, well, you care so much. My box this week was late too. What are you doing about that? And now I have to handle this particular person's issue uh, and you can't really get away from them after you ask for the video.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so there's that part of it, too. But they, they definitely felt uh, as if they were being heard. And I, I think even in the situations that were more negative, uh, it was overall a positive that we reached out and that they felt <laughs> like they could uh, not just write a comment in that maybe would get read, maybe wouldn't. Uh, when they knew the whole company was going to see their 30 second, one minute video, um, they almost got excited about it because there, there hasn't been uh, another avenue like that where they thought that they could voice their issue, which, of course, is very important to them. Their box being late is the most important thing in the world, in their world, uh, and get that across to the whole company. That was an exciting thing uh, for most of those wow. users, and uh, they wound up being thankful that I reached out.
0: Yeah, and the, the impact of sharing it with the org, text versus video, like what, what were some ahas you had with that as well?
1: I think the, the commentary afterward, right? If, if we got one or two that came up to us after a meeting where Colin and I did a reading, you know, that was that was good. Um, on the videos, it was, it was more so the slacks that I got afterwards where they would slack me and be like, can you send me that video? Like, do you have yeah. it? I want to rewatch that. Um, no one ever said, hey, can you send me the comment that Colin read this morning? Um, it, the video they wanted to see again and again, or they wanted to share it around their team
2: yeah. and
1: show people because it was something that they did wrong. Um, And that made it a lot more usable, shareable. And we had a a channel for like Delighted NPS, all the detractors to come in, whole company could see it, but I don't know how many people actually were reading it. It does become sort of noise after it. And you don't really get in touch with that person if you're not seeing them and hearing their voice. So um, I I think that was the most impactful voice of customer thing that that we did in our time there.
0: So the whole thing about consumer sentiment, like this is a very hot topic in the industry. Everybody's trying to measure that, voice of the customer. When you think about the emails that come in, like you just said, Colin reads it, um, it's not really what you say, it's it's how you say it. So how do the three of you, I mean, whether it's Freshly or where you are now, how do you look at consumer sentiment? And how do you, like, how do you get the most out of the text?
1: I don't know. Dan, you want to go or D,
0: Colin you want to go? I feel like I've been talking too much. <laughs> Me too. Well,
3: I'll just I'm going to say it's uh, well, there, there are different ways you can do that. So obviously you can use tools so you can use like text based uh, analysis tools, which are increasingly becoming popular in order to, uh, you know, look at mass content and extract patterns in that. So I think on a on a, a large scale level, that's basically what you what you have to do. Um, but um, uh, otherwise, it's kind of coming down to. Uh, being able to, you know, look at, find some way to organize the content you're receiving, whichever form you're receiving it is the main thing. And there are different ways you can do that, but you need, you need to make it palatable. So you need to be able to organize the content. uh, and then you need to be able to make sure it's going to the right people. Um, so like, like Ben was saying in a format that's very shareable when you identify a piece of feedback, especially relevant for a certain team and operations or engineering or product or something like that, then you need to make sure you have mechanisms for delivering that to the right people. So I think the, the meaningfulness you get out of it is the ability where you can have a, an overarching report to understand sentiment, especially when it comes to trends. So that, that's another thing. So not just about what the sentiment is now, but where uh, it used to be. Uh, because sometimes when you're identifying areas of concern, it's not necessarily a matter of you know what 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 percentage does this sentiment make up in your current uh, engagement with customers, but it's how does that compare with the past and is there a trend upwards and is that trend troubling? So having some historical awareness, but having that tool overarchingly to be able to look at your data across the board and then making sure you have mechanisms for being able to get examples of that sentiment in a palatable way. And distribute that to the right people in the organization, so the right people get access to that information. So, on a broad level, I think that's kind of what makes that more palatable.
2: We actually had a, a couple of different meetings uh, where we would uh, share some of that sentiment, you know, especially the trends, right? Um, we would look at them and put the the not not just put them up there where they could be seen, right? But actually read those out right? Because there's, there's a difference between having the information there and seeing it and having it actually read to you. Yes, it feels somewhat, I don't know, uh, elementary, but I think it is that much more impactful when somebody's reading it with the intent uh, that is that it was sent by a you know, from that customer, right? And so when we had those, um, we would get, and we would have those meetings, sorry, when we had those meetings and then we would read out some of these uh, comments like that inevitably after every meeting, someone would say, hey, can you send me this slide? Or can you send me that comment? Or can you send me this? Uh, because they wanted to go do some more uh, research on it. Because if you just stick something into a Slack or you, you just stick something onto like, um, you know, an internet site or something to that effect, are people gonna look at it? Maybe. Right. But if you're forcing them to actually hear the information um, and you're like putting it on them um, and their teams, especially when it does, uh, you know, actually touch something that their team is is affected by, um, then it's different.
0: I mean, how impactful is that when a team works on a project so hard and it's so easy to move on to the next thing? But then when your team comes back and says, look at this video that the customer sent in on how much better this experience is because of your hard work. I mean, that's that's the most fulfilling thing Um, that that brings up the other question. You keep talking about working cross departmentally. Was that an issue like an initiative from the CX side of the org? Was that an initiative from leadership or how did that all even start? Because I know some organizations are very siloed and it, it can hurt where, like you said, you're the ones talking to the customers. How do you get that buy in from the other departments?
1: So you, you guys may have uh, more to say, but I have a very specific memory that's like stuck in my mind about this because, uh, like I said, uh, back to the early conversation about like the superpower of not being a contact center guy, I wasn't bringing any of that to it. I'd never worked in a startup either, right? I, I worked at sports entertainment venues. Um, I remember sitting on the, the floor in New York and hearing a call come in from a customer and the customer was talking about a marketing promotion that they got an email about. And the agent was adamant saying, no, you're wrong. That that's not a marketing promotion that's going on right now. And the customer was saying, yeah, I have it. It's right here. And I just thought it was crazy that something from marketing had gone out to customers that the agents weren't well aware of first and that we would be you know, blindsided by a, a customer contact and make us look, look silly. Um, so maybe that was the first time of, of many where I just got up and walked over to marketing guy. And i was like what's going on what's happening why didn't we know this and i started a a weekly one-on-one uh with the guy who was in charge of marketing at the time when we were all really small in one office space Um, and it it started to feel like there needed to be communication between almost every department and cx Um, if a meal changed we needed to know about it if there was a delay at the facility we needed to know about it if a marketing promotion went out that was us right if there's a change to the website that's us so really that that sucks for all the other teams right to feel like oh we always have to go and check in with cx and tell them what we're doing like we move fast we don't have time to go and check in um so we wound up trying to you know create these bridges um to ensure that there was you know not a lot of onus put on those departments but when things changed um we were alerted to it in enough time that the cx team would be aware of it so that if we were on a call we would never be blindsided like that again um and i think that you know that's not New, but it, that, thats my experience with it, and it was new to me.
3: Yeah, I think the key thing is—it's not kind of like with the voice of the customer stuff—is that you have to be mindful about engaging with other teams. And um, it was definitely easier uh, earlier in the startup environment, pre-COVID, where everyone's on the same floor together and what have you. Um, but you know, when everyone is separated. Uh, either you know, geographically or organizationally, more and more as teams grow and teams huddle with themselves and they don't communicate as much with the rest of the organization, and that sort of thing. You have to be mindful about making connections It's sort of the same way now, people are more appreciative of the fact that you have to be mindful about uh, agent morale and agent culture, mm-hmm. uh, because you just can't take it for granted. that You can walk around the floor and understand how people are feeling just by seeing how they interact with others, uh, and you have to institute mechanisms to track how people are feeling and maybe surveys or different uh, cultural events or, or institutionalized opportunities for people to connect and that sort of thing. So I'd say the same thing is true when it comes to uh, interdepartmental collaboration. And Ben actually was was the major person handling this, uh, even in, in the latter stage of Freshly when we were much more balkanized and siloed, uh, where uh, he was our liaison with the product team and the engineering team. So... Uh, he was that, that person who could communicate our needs as an organization to them and our voice to uh, those organizations. Um, and he did it very, very effectively and had a lot of good uh, allies. in And he was included in a lot of, of their regular weekly meetings, as an example. So he was kind of inculcated in their processes. Um, and then we also tried to do more where we're involving agents as well in that process. So, so he ran a process where some agents were involved in some product-level discussions. So we give agents the opportunity to raise their hand and volunteer themselves uh for uh adding in their two cents on on a regular basis uh usually on like a with a quarterly time frame uh where they could join some of these product meetings or test out some upcoming product launches before they they launch live um, and provide that that voice and these were all programs that were trying to institutionalize you see other companies do things like you know, everyone has to go through CX training as an example. So you see that at some companies as a way to kind of institutionalize collaboration from early on. Or another thing we used at Freshly, which was more widespread, is like a pod concept for a period of time, where you would you would break up the customer experience in different uh, key touch points, let's say, and you would have a pod on that experience, and it's a cross-functional pod where you inherently had someone from product and engineering and CX and marketing and what have you. So I think the key thing is you need to find ways to institutionalize ultimately cross collaboration in your organization. So like with the infrastructure building, it just becomes part of the way you do business Uh, and you can incentivize like in the performance review process, you you can bring in incentives uh, when it comes to being cross collaborative in the in the values you represent as a company and uh, what what cultural rubric you use where you could rank uh, collaboration, let's say, very highly at least have some way of Uh, rating people according to that.
2: If I can just add on, when all of that doesn't work, right? If you try to pull all these things in place and all of it doesn't work, having managers who will go out to these other teams, right? And intimidate them for not providing us any of this information, right? And those teams realizing that if I don't get this to our customer experience team before we send this out or before we do this, or before we implement this thing, I know I'm going to hear from blank, right? right? That was also something that we used very, very well. My team specifically used that uh, very well.
0: So there's two things that follow up right on that. And we're coming up at time. I think there's five minutes left. Um, and, and thank you for everyone you know, staying on amongst the technical difficulties. Nicholas brings up I guess for you, Ben, uh, have you seen good examples of how an organization shares out launches within the org? And he mentions, he already gets a ton of emails. So how how do you prioritize that or do it in a different way?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the easy answer is email. And I, and I think product putting out like a good weekly email of like what's coming up, what's you know looking uh, to be coming out soon, what actually launched this week, all that is still good to have, but he's right. Um, we see open rates on those emails, not all that high.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, and it, it, yeah, we do get too many emails. I think having a, a key relationship where like product can can give the information in a, in a meeting setting to one person from CX and letting that person distill it in the ways that work for the organization Um, make sense or the department. So like in, in our world, we wound up having like a community manager who would be in charge of what announcements go out, when those announcements happen, like what channels do they actually go out on? Um, to actually hit everybody in the CX world appropriately. And it's not just another email, it's a Slack, it's um, a a mention in some daily shift memo potentially. Um, What rises to the level of each, what gets the full treatment, where it's going in all of them. um, Those decisions are made after we get the information from a product email, but that product email is not just going out to everyone, it's going to that connector. And then we determine how we're going to distill it out. Um, we have tools like lessonly, like right? does this constitute yeah. uh, a whole new lesson being built because it's, it's that big of a change. Um, and then there's a whole list of announcements that go with a, a whole new lesson. Uh, and you have to take a lesson on it, you have to pass that test. So there's a lot that you could do. Um, if you have the infrastructure in place. And if you have that strong one-person connection to get relevant information in a timely manner, um, and that's the best way to do it. If if you do get too many emails, like clearly, uh, young Nicholas here does.
0: <laughs> is it, it was there anything with that where you you know this, these are the methods that you think work, but again, because you develop that cross-departmental collaboration, is there ways you use feedback to say, hey, this is how I'm trying to engage with you. Are there other ways you want me to do it?
1: Yeah, you do, but. What I've seen work is if you show that person on the other end, all the work that's gonna happen on this end, if you just tell me the information, they feel a little bit of pressure there. And that's where Dan sort of got at some of this intimidation, right? I would show them a daily shift memo, what our Slack announcements look like, what Lessonly looks like. And I'd let them know like, hey, if you're going to be putting out some new bit of information, here's what's gonna happen with that on my end. And all of this relies on you telling me relevant information in real time. Yeah. And so then they wind up feeling this pressure to come and tell you the right things at the right time because they know what's going to happen on the back end. And they don't feel the pressure. Just like, oh, I, I don't want to do all that. I'll just <laughs> tell you this and you go figure out the rest. And they feel like we're letting them off the hook and they're getting us good information in real time.
0: Good. Yeah, it's give and take. Set yeah. Expectations. yeah.
3: Um, the only thing I'll add know, into that the, because, yeah, Ben made really, really good points there. And, uh, yeah, the only thing I'd add to that, too, is it kind of comes back to the theme of being mindful about things, again, and kind of institutionalizing processes. And the other thing is that as we institutionalize some of these things he mentioned, we also uh, put in tracking mechanisms. So not just kind of doing all these things and having process, but also understanding how can we actually track success in the same way that when you engage with customers, you track how you engage them. So no one sends off a bunch of emails to customers and doesn't care about open rates like Ben mentioned. Uh, But there are a lot of companies who do that with employees where you may have all these emails you're sending employees but you don't have any metrics to track how successful those communications are, how many people are opening the emails, or how many people are clicking on the emails, or if you have Slack channels, how many people are engaging them and at what rate, things of that nature. So when you're institutionalizing some processes, it's kind of mindful to think about uh, what ways do you have where you can track success, some metric around defining success, even sometimes if it could be like quarterly surveys and just trying to get feedback from people on the ground as to, you know, which communications do you find helpful and which don't you find helpful and why. But having something in there um, so you, you're just making sure that you're you're setting standards for yourself. And once you find good standards, then uh, you can set goals as as you progress uh, and, and chart improvements. So you actually know you, you're at the very least heading in the right direction and your communication is getting cleaner and more people are reading it and more people are engaging with it and so
0: forth. Yeah, it's such a good point, putting a process into place, but then getting feedback, having no ego, and adapting to that is is crucial to getting everybody on board. Okay. Um, there's other questions and comments that came through that are really good ones. We can follow up separately afterwards. I know we're at time. In the last 30 seconds, you worked at a food delivery startup. What were some of the weirdest things that came through on the CX side as it relates to food, anger? What, like anything, any tickets that came through?
1: There's a lot.
2: (laughs) I think one of the most memorable ones on our side was when um, Mike, our CEO, came to our office in Phoenix and decided to actually take a phone call. Yep. That did not go well. Uh, he was he was a perfect example of how not to handle a customer uh, interaction. So I, th- I think that was probably uh, you know the best one at least from my point of view. I,
1: I saw a comment that said grill knobs. I was thinking about grill knobs. I'll go with Sharpie gate. Um, finding the Sharpie um there, there there were there were an accidental drop of a sharpie that went through the vegetable cutter and we found all the pieces of the sharpie in multiple meals that happened okay. um wow well, yes that was lisa's call come on, what, what do you
3: got i know we have uh, a lot. i was i was thinking of the whispering customer the of it, it michael on the phone that's right customer who, who just was are, are you real
0: <laughs> i remember I some, some horror movie yeah,
3: yeah it sounds like an exorcist.
0: the exorcist that's that's on. um Look, I know we have to jump off. Thank you all. It's been the first episode. It was a great one. There's more we could definitely talk about. Again, uh sponsored by Hark. Please reach out if uh any questions on that. And yeah, we are going to end it now. We'll share this out for for uh, a replay if you need any of it. Thanks to Colin, thanks Ben and thanks Dan for joining.
1: Of course. Thanks everybody.
0: All right.